welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another Knock On Podcast. I'm super excited about this one because I've actually got two of my good buddies with us. Um, It's kind of cool because I talked them into going into a conference room and they pretty much, from what I hear, have to put their faces together. Jeez, turn your phone off, you guys. So I got Eric Gudgel and I got EJ back. We've got a really cool podcast somewhat lined out to uh, talk to you all about. So say hi, guys. Hello, Dutch. How are you? Good. Good morning, John. <laughs> Both of you guys sound the least energetic I've ever heard you, <laughs> ever. <laughs> no, I'm so focused on the task that we're about to talk about, I don't have a lot of energy to waste on the little things. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not 4.30 in the freaking morning, too, so it's kind of nice. We're uh, we're just, uh, we're, we're cowered around this conference call phone. It's kind of cool. My back may spasm at some point, so it's all good. <laughs> Sweet. Well, so the reason we're kind of decided on this podcast, and sorry, I'm actually eating. <laughs> I'm eating a bar and drinking coffee because I haven't had my breakfast yet. But um, EJ listened to the podcast that I did with Eric. And Gudge, do you remember what podcast number that was? I don't even remember. 78. Okay, so go back to 78. We did a podcast. We dove into a lot of different things that were a little, you know, mental and process oriented. Obviously, um, EJ and I have talked about that a lot. Are you giving lessons today, EJ? Is that why you guys are at the golf course? No, we did it because it's the best place to find a landline where we could actually talk to you. It's a little cold outside today, so this works out perfect for us. Oh, okay. Yeah, what's it, 60 down there? Heck no. Like 45 with the wind out of the north. All right. Yeah. Well, I'll give you a little. Yeah, I guess you could get out some uh, long johns for that. Well, so, Ege, we kind of talked a little bit. So let's lead into this. This podcast really is going to be dedicated. And I, I, I just want to say, I, both these guys, I have so much respect for. Um, EJ comes from a sport of golf, which is so much like archery from a mental aspect you know this podcast is really going to be focused i guess we can say a lot of the hunters will get stuff out of it for proper mindset for hunting as well but the target archers you guys really need to pay attention on this podcast for sure because this is the make or break for performance this is really what it's all about so i'm going to let you lead in to maybe our first topic ej and we'll just kind of wing it from there okay so um i think what you know credit to you you're you're developing what i would call a culture and and the people that you uh that are are drawn to you i would say are very passionate and it's the reason that it brought me to you as well um because if i can get one leg up on the guy next to me i want that advantage um so to continue this culture and, and continue helping these people. When you and Gudge started, it just started me going crazy because what's different from your aspect is most likely you're not going to see these people. You, you're not going to get hands-on. 
you can't see them. They're explaining stuff to you in a in a ten word text, and you're trying to solve that problem. So, I just sat down and I tried to figure out how we could help these people develop a process that um, would help them in improving their skills, but with it in mind that you'll never see them. So I just jotted down a few things, notes that I sent you guys that we'll cover, and as I go through them, obviously I need you to help me tweak them based on archery. But number one and first and foremost would be that of a proper equipment. Uh, I think that's something that obviously some people may be limited based on resources, but I still think that there's enough people or you've provided enough knowledge where proper equipment would be number one. Oh yeah, no doubt. I mean, well, funny enough, I learned that when it came to golf too, because there was, for the longest time I enjoyed playing golf and I probably played way more when I was younger, but I just continually struggled. And I think it was like my, maybe my 19th birthday, my dad said, Hey, I want to take you out and get you a set of custom clubs. And I went out and actually went through the process of someone, you know, looking at my size and custom fitting my clubs, custom fitting the degree of my head, the length of the, you know, of my shafts. And um, I went out and just, and I'm certain it wasn't a placebo thing because it's been that way for the longest time now, but I was able to go out and play instantly better instantly because i think for the first time i wasn't trying to hit a golf ball with only a part of the club laying fl flush to the ground and i also wasn't having to bend over and try to be consistent with like bent too much of the waist or bent too much of the knees and with archery it's it's really the same thing if people well the saddest part about um when i travel to some of these countries where they just don't have connectivity is these archers almost have harder work ethic because they're trying so hard to get to the level that they know the rest of the world's at but their equipment is just so improperly fit or properly improperly set up that they're just automatically they have this anchor just pulling them down and you know well, fortunately, I guess the one thing, neither one of you two are totally hip on the direction that the that my new website's going, but this is going to be able to change um, quite a bit because I will have access to some of this. But you're right. How does the person at home that can't call me on the phone or text me, what can we do to set them up? And first and foremost is going to be equipment. Yeah, exactly. And in those podcasts you've been doing, some amazed me the other day when um, you were setting up that last bow and the gentleman texted in about arrow straightness. And I didn't think it had that big of an effect, you know, for a guy like me not shooting target. But the percentage off that you said based on arrow straightness was just overwhelming to me. I would have never guessed. It's like a bad golf ball for us. We They did a study a few years ago and they, they tested a ball that had been played zero holes, six holes, nine holes, 12 holes, and the variance of offline of those balls hit by the iron byron at ping, um, the deviation of that ball offline as it was used more and more was, was great. And, and it obviously, from what I learned from you the other day, that's the same with 
arrow straightness, if I understood you correctly. Yeah, no doubt about it. Arrow, I mean, arrow straightness is, that's almost a level that's three steps above what I think a lot of people have for their first equipment problems is just, um, you know, improper draw length, people not being measured properly. And I think Gudge can chime in on this too, because Eric has been in more retail stores than probably you or I combined. And he's seen the good archery shops, the bad archery shops, but he's also seen a lot of guys that walk in the archery shop that just, you know, that's back there shooting. And, you know, I know Eric will ask him like, hey, you know, have you ever had anyone fit you properly? Oh, no, I just got this bow from my buddy. And that's, I think that's where we got to start with this whole deal. Well, you're absolutely right. And I, I got to tell you, it's it's really odd. I know everybody out there even listening that I am the most inferior sitting between these two guys. I feel I feel so crazy inadequate, just so everybody knows. I mean, I'm just a hillbilly that loves archery and I love golf and I love being the best that can possibly be, right? And so that's honestly um, one of the reasons that I'm so attracted to, to this this um just this topic right how can we help people and and uh you know equipment to me my best story ever from being in my archery shop was fitting a guy grabbing the archery grabbing the chart picking it out and he looked at me i go how many would you like would you like six or a dozen he goes no i just want one and i thought <laughs> that is my freaking guy right there dude he was dead bone serious but it is amazing to me the arrow is is as critical as anything i mean obviously setting up a bow and getting it you know, uh, crazy perfect is great, but my arrow, I tell you what, I uh, I focus more on that than anything. It's like a scope on a gun. If you don't have a great scope on your gun, you can't see it. Who cares how, how accurate it is? To me, the arrow means everything, but um, I, I'm, I'm with you. You know, telling that story and straightness and being able to spin that thing and uh, just great quality product, um, you know, and, and there's a lot of options out there from affordable price and so forth, but Equipment's a no-brainer, and it's a difficult sport. I mean, getting it set up and having confidence in it and trusting it is absolutely critical, you know, and, and I think the podcasts have obviously been a huge step in, in helping people get there. What? Um, so, Gudge, you started working on your own equipment probably right after you and I first started meeting, right? Before that, you were always going into shops. You know, I, I actually, in college, so back uh, 30 years ago, I worked at a, we started an archery shop, a good friend of mine, and uh, so I, uh, I I got some knowledge there working on my own. That was really fun. You know, it was way back in the days of the Pro Vantage and, uh, you know, some, some really cool um, uh, Hoyt bows. It was a lot of fun, but uh, not real mega serious, not deep dive until we, you know, until you just started pouring into me some of your knowledge. Well, I think the first and foremost, and people should be able to find this on the Knock on Archer YouTube site. Soon this will all be changed over to the website. Um, but you should be able to search on YouTube. I'm just going to check now while we're talking. But you should be able to search um, John Dudley Draw Length. Yeah, it just popped up. So if you check that, um, there's a video uh, called Proper Draw Length with John Dudley of Knock On. Um, and that, there's actually two videos side to side. That first video shows proper posture and really what we're looking for for fit. 
Because if your posture is incorrect with archery, then a lot of other things soon fall out of play as well. So um, right under, at least in my feed when it popped up recommendations, um, right under the proper draw length with John Dudley, the next recommended for me um, is actually how to adjust your draw length. Um, I did a video for um, for myself, but I also did one for Lancaster Archery Supply. That's that's this one that's popped up in the feed. But this shows you how to address your draw length on your bow. That's first and foremost. You need to know how to. You know, it's hard right now talking to you because I, you know, this isn't a live feed, so I'm not able to show you. But you know, you need proper length on your bow in order for you to have proper technique and posture so that's first and foremost once you have that then you know we move into a whole another realm of things arrow rest arrows obviously you know how to properly set your sight up i mean there's a lot of stuff there for equipment but certainly quit equipment i think is going to be it's going to be high on the list I, I don't know about you, EJ, but I always say, I mean, it's important that you have proper fit, obviously, but I always feel like work ethic does outweigh equipment, though, at times. Oh, I agree, because my bow and my technique aren't great, you know, and I and I found that out. I, I, I've learned it through the school of hard knocks. I mean, I didn't have any gurus show me anything. I just knew I want, I'm passionate about it when I started in 92. And I was fortunate to get that bow from Shipley, and I just knew I wanted to start shooting. And I taught myself how to do it. And I get to you, and I find out that, you know, my my uh, anchor points below my chin, you know, and this whole disaster. But you're right. I think talent and work ethic and instincts can overcome faulty equipment to a to a to a uh, to a small amount, you know. Well, you sent me something here, and I'm just now um, trying to make sure I give proper credit to it. But this is specific to you sent me a a book a book of um, how learning works, and it, yeah, it's yeah. with Ambrose. Right in front of me. Oh, you do Ambrose Bridges, DePetro, Love It, Norman from 2010. So it says step one is learning is or one thing the first thing to note is that learning is a process and not a product. Um, however, because this process takes place in the mind, we can only infer that it has occurred from students' products or performances. So to me, experience is the best teacher. Right. Would you interpret that if you if you understand how to inter interpret the experience? Is that fair? Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's um, obviously there are different ways to learn. I know that for me, if I read it, um, I might somewhat comprehend it, but that doesn't mean I understand how to do it. Um, you know, being able, and that's why I think having some interaction with the coach is so important and really that's why why i want to move that direction with this new website is because i at least want to be able to show someone one piece of an example of maybe what they're doing and that's really why i want to bring in just random people and work with them for you know one live feed because 
it's almost like with archery and maybe you see this with golf there isn't one set like i guess bad form habit it's like everyone is so unique because the human body just moves in infinite directions so everyone could be slightly different and unless you're you know like you said unless you're able to learn it by experiencing it then it's really really hard to grasp just reading an article and hearing someone's words or seeing someone's words on it yeah that's why there's a lot of value to your live feeds where you can see it you oh know, yeah I, it, that helps a bunch that that live stuff you're doing where we see you working on the bow and how you're adjusting the rest and and all that stuff so that's that's another added value to help people learn from a visual perspective for sure yep you got anything to chime in with that gudge well you know i, I think um obviously everybody learns a little bit differently right and and again learning and interpreting and then internalizing that right that's that's the million dollar question um, we obviously experience a lot of different things, but what do we do with that, and how do we put it into what we call, you know, this word process, right? I mean, um, it, it's such a weird word, and it's it's so hard for, you know, everybody to, wh- what does that mean? What is a process? You know, I try to talk about, to, to Grant, about shooting free throws, you know, my youngest son, and, and, and you know, he's scared to death to shoot PKs in soccer, you know, and, and and my, my point to him is, obviously, Grant, you've got to have a process. You've got to have a system in place that allows you to, one, not worry about being scared, right? Because obviously he's scared to do that. He's afraid of failure, right, each? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. so, you know, when I talk about process, I'm like, Grant, you've got to get yourself into a situation like with shooting a free throw. You spin the ball twice, or you spin the ball once, you bounce it twice, and you shoot, you know, you don't think. The idea is to pull you out of that, to get it in a consistent situation, right? And from learning, you know, with all these new things, you're trying to teach people how to feel it. And, and it's hard to do that when they're not in front of you, right? I mean, how do you create that learning, right? And, and again, it's from experience. So you've got to, you know, it's, it's pretty tricky. But with Grant, I'm trying to get him to learn, you know, hey, go practice it. You know, go practice it. What I mean by that, go train, go train. Shoot, imagine somebody's there. You know, what are you thinking about? Are you scared to miss? You know, are you, well, that obviously is a, is a barrier to success if there's fear in there, right, Each, I mean, you've you got to completely trust that you're going to make it every time. And you may not, but you've got to at least believe it. Yeah, and, and, John, I think what we're talking about there, too, is, you know, when you go to your shoots and you were competitive and it came down to you on your last arrow, there was no, I mean, just because you've trained and, and it's same with a golf shot when Tiger Woods was in his prime and there's water left and all that, how do you get the student to understand and embrace that moment to where, hey, this is cool, this is what I've trained for, I'm excited about the opportunity to beat this guy, I want to beat him so bad I can't see straight, and I'm going to go do it, and, I, and, and basically you get in your own little bubble of self-confidence, you step up and you release the best arrow you've ever flung in your life. And that feel has been a has been because of a lot of things that occurred to allow you to do that. So I think what Gudge is talking about and what we need the view or the listeners to do is be able to embrace that and allow them to get to that moment. So whether it's a target archer that has a chance to win or a, a hunter that's going to shoot the biggest buck of his life, how can we help them understand that that process 
to get to that point is hard work. You're going to have to leave your comfort zone, put your ego to the side, learn from it, and then embrace it, and then you'll, you'll be able to experience that stuff that we've been able to feel through success. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, pro- the word process, by definition, it's a series of actions or steps taken in order to achieve a particular end. But the word process doesn't define what your ending will be. So depending on how you look at that process from the beginning, that's going to determine what those steps are going to conclude at, at the end of those steps. So, you know, like like you said, Gudge, um, when Grant is automatically thinking of this process of going to a goalie and kicking a penalty kick as a potentially negative ending then it's highly likely that the negative end is going to be the result unless the goalkeeper is having probably more excessive thoughts of kind of the same thing so you know but granted it's grant's not taking advantage of that opportunity he might actually just get lucky and get the win because the other guy blew it more so you really have to look at the word process and when you think about that mentally as an archer or competitor in any sport you have to think of the word process but really focus on the ending being positive you know if you step up to a you know a par three and there's water all the way around if you know like Ege said if you're like oh shit look at all that water well you've kind of automatically force yourself towards one direction during this process am i right yeah and it's not conducive to the outcome that truly you want yeah no for sure yeah for sure it's not yeah for sure it's not you know that's why you're 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 contaminating you're 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 self-sabotaging the mindset that you really need to be in for you to perform your best now i talk about this all the time with the players that win a tournament i say listen when you get back to your hotel, I want you to write me a two paragraphs on that day and that experience because at the end of it, you're going to want to go back to that. Mm. And the power of the pen and ink down on paper is very, very powerful for recalling in the future. So I encourage them, just one or two paragraphs. Okay, John, you just won that, that world shoot. Can you write for me two paragraphs on what what how did you feel that day what did you have for breakfast was there nervousness anxiety you know the whole nine yards because if we can get you back into that mindset you're going to have that same result again and again and again and when you can't have that outcome you're sabotaging so how do we get you back in there yeah absolutely what you talk about is i do i do a very very similar thing um especially when when archers achieve something really good for the first time like if i'm working with national teams you know sometimes i'll have someone that just shoots the best six arrows of their life and i'll have them sit down and i'll say you know i want you to write that out in your phone i want you to take notes on that shot i said i said i want you to write a few sentences about each of your five senses i want you to write about you know how it looked i want you to write how it felt how it sounded you know, even even if you know if you're chewing a certain flavor bubble gum, you know, talk about all that because the you know it's almost like when Sharon will come to me and say, "Oh, remember when we did this?" I'll be like, "Nah, no, not really." And then she'll say, "Well, 
remember you had those one shoes on and then that waiter kind of said something about your shoes and it's like oh yeah 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 so i mean by incorporating all those different senses you're improving your opportunity to remember that exact feeling and draw yourself into that moment again if you just have a really good performance or a real awesome practice day but you don't take advantage of actually writing that down or documenting somehow how well you actually did it's too easy to just forget about that in life and there may be a time where if you're having doubts about your shots or your shooting or how you used to do you got to be able to to pull that out i mean i i have so many targets that i kept or scorecards that i kept from tournaments and a lot of times they're just in random places and i'll be looking for something and all of a sudden i'll come across a scorecard or come across a target and i'll be like holy crap yeah i remember when i did that and you know that's that's important if you shoot a really cool target you know if you go out with a fresh target face and you shoot a really good uh a really good practice round flip that target over and do exactly what i just said and what ej said write something down about that and keep that experience because having those to fall back on when you need them could be critical to a super high performance well doug you know what i i'm just sitting here as, as i'm internalizing this right and i'm learning right now I'm thinking about the thousands of arrows that I shoot, you know, in training, right? Getting ready for one, maybe two, three arrows a year that I get to shoot at a buck or a hog or a turkey, right? And I'm thinking about that. And, and I, you know, one thing that's so amazing, I think, has always struck me about um, taking something's life with my archery equipment is I remember it. I mean, I almost vividly remember them flying through the air. But here's my, here's here's what what is what is sinking into me right now. Have I written down how I feel after I pull the trigger on you know the two big bucks so far in 16? No. Um, in fact, I try to remember even you know did I go through my process? And I, I'll tell you, there is there is dozens of animals that I've shot that I go completely blank. I can't, I, I don't even remember them. I mean, it's like amnesia. It was complete autopilot. Um, how, how did it even happen, right? And, and obviously that's what I'm doing all the time is trying to, to stay in a system or a process, right, where I know my shoulder, my body, everything is, is right. And you know, I've been doing this a long time, a long time, and, and it's just now getting to where, again, the learning part of it and, and going through my process, my, my very intentional process of, of, you know, my checklist. You know, I call it my Dudley checklist, right? I mean, um, you know, making sure that my, my shoulder's down, that, that I'm like, and, and, you know, that would be great even for the bow hunter. For me, after I, you know, accomplish something that, you know, isn't easy to do, right? I mean, we're, we're suffering for day on end to try to kill a, a big buck. Writing that down after that would be huge. you agree, Each? Well, yeah, and it gets into what just another part of the whole deal is discipline. It takes discipline. It's not easy to practice perfect. It's not you, – you've got to be disciplined, and you've got to have your, your program. When I, when I have kids go hit balls, it's not just random acts of swings. It's not just swing, 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 swing. There's certain stations I set up for immediate feedback, and this is where John could help him on the archery side that I was thinking about the other day from a visual learning perspective. Would you shoot through paper? John, would you 
you know, what other things from a visual feedback? Let's just say we get the equipment, we've watched the podcast, our equipment's right, we know our draw length, our poundage, our rest, our arrows, our tip is all good, we know our technique's pretty good. What kind of things, because when a golf ball takes off, we have curvature, we have flight, we have trajectory, you know, we have different variables that we can assess what kind of went on, but in archery, if we get through those like we've talked about so far, what other visuals could get feedback to Aeroflight to help someone? Well, I mean, there's, I don't know, there's a, there's a couple different things we've hit on here that we've talked about and that I've kind of, I, you know, I kept wanting to jump in, but it's cool that there's three of us because there's a lot of fresh topics popping up already that I'm thinking about. But, you know, a big part of, Earlier, you were just talking about kind of, uh, I think it was Gudge was talking really about his process um, that he goes through, and you're kind of focusing on, I don't know, you're, you're focusing on making that as good as possible, but at the same sense, you know, you have to be willing to to honestly assess what you're doing too and have a little bit of your competitive drive push you during your practice because you know if you're if you're only there to just do reps it's it seems like it's a very inefficient day of practice in my opinion i really like today i actually um because it's at the end of hunting season i'm really now starting to try to get back into my peak shape and today i actually put a uh, a kettlebell video on that was 35 minutes long and I grabbed some fairly light kettlebells and within within like 12 to 14 minutes I mean I was literally feeling like I was going to tip over and faint and instead of me saying god this workout's hard I was actually really upset by the fact that I wasn't in better shape to be able to do that video properly i was mad at myself because i wasn't able to do it with proper form and i wasn't i wasn't able to keep up so i mean you whenever we talk about practice you have to be willing to have this internal drive that just makes you want to be better at something and makes you not content if you're not doing something good you know gudge talked he talks a lot or he's talked to me a lot about how to prepare people for you know having that one moment that they you know if they've practiced all year now they've got one moment at a buck how do we prepare them for that moment all this stuff that we're talking about even if you're listening and you're not a target archer competitive archer or even if you're not really that focused on practice the quality it's almost more important that your quality of practice is at a better level than anyone else. If you're going to be a minimalist in how much you actually prepare, you have to have your practice be at a level that, you know, well, hopefully it's at a level where if it's not good, then you're not content with that. And you actually have like this internal flame that lights inside you and just makes you want to be better. That's how I was. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that's how the both of you guys are. I know, Gudge, you're you're super competitive, you know, by nature and you actually feel competitive when you're hunting, you know, if there's a buck that's outsmarting you or if there's, you know, if you feel like 
you did everything right to have your shot and then all of a sudden that buck has six cents and he figures you out or a hog busts you at the last second i mean you take it personal and that's what you have to do if you're wanting to excel um when it comes to performance i don't think there's any doubt and, and i you know what what's interesting too and what i think i've i've been able to overcome with with maturity of, of you know understanding the process is knowing that one event doesn't define me you know I, I think it's pretty easy you know you think about it from a golf standpoint you know I, you, you hit a lot of bad shots how do you overcome those right I mean I, I think that's the part that you know those are those are not me they're just events you know bad things happen you know I, I I've, I've uh, wounded a lot of animals, you know, that I'm not proud of, and there's a lot of reasons for that, right? Some were mine, some were, you know, um, external factors, different things, you know, that, but how do you overcome those? And that's one of the things that, uh, you know, I know Eve is so good at, and, and I know, how do, you, how do you continue to go, you know, um, focus on the good? You talk about subconscious, right? And, and see great things and over and over, and, um, you know, I, I don't know. I think that's something that, that I'm always striving for. Is it competitive? Absolutely. I, I mean, you know, and, and it's funny, you, you talk about golfers. I remember, I think even each told me this, you know, a, a guy like um, Matt Kuchar, one of the nicest guys on the planet. Let me tell you, that dude is a stone cold killer when it comes to golf, isn't he? I mean, he is, he would rip your throat out. And I'm going to say that's exactly the same way for anybody playing on that PGA Tour. They play a game of honor. They play a game of, you know, incredible integrity. But still, they're the most incredible competitive human beings on earth, right? And we just do it in a little different way sometimes with, with golf. But archery, it's no different. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons that we probably love it so much. Each, I don't know. It's, it's so crazy hard. I mean, killing a big buck. I mean, getting close to them is only one part of the, the equation, right? I mean, you know how hard it is getting your stuff and preparing and, and, and hopefully getting close to, you know, your, your core. Your, your, it's, it's just tough, you know. So we love that competitive side of it, you know, all the way around. And, uh, you know, we just hope to be able to, to one, talk, talk amongst ourselves so we can help people, you know, a lot quicker than it took us, yeah, you know, 30 correct. years, right? We're, we're trying to share experiences to help your listener not have to go through the pain and heartache we did, you know, and, and, and that's why all three of us are passionate about doing this. When you agree, Doug, we're, we're just trying to help them shorten the learning curve. Oh, yeah, I think that's what's awesome about everything we're doing right now is there's so many people um, that are new to archery, and, I mean, I every single day someone either writes Sharon or writes me and says, you know, that they – they kind of learned, heard about archery through Joe Rogan and started doing it. And then they came across what I'm doing and they're trying to learn. And, you know, what's awesome is right now you can, you can become very, you can become way above average in golf or I mean in archery in much shorter time, I think than you can even at golf. I mean, there's just so much good information out there. Um, that people aren't really having to make so many mistakes as compared to back when I was trying to learn. You know, I think that's why, I really think that that's why Joe specifically is so, he, I mean, he's actually infatuated with archery. I mean, he, 
he watches it to the point where I'm like, dude, you gotta like <laughs> rest your mind a little bit from this. But he, I think for him, his he's so competitive at wanting to perfect something that archery is one of those things where it gives you these little bitty like it gives you these little bitty moments to where you feel like you're like you're there and you you've mastered it but then it also quickly takes it away if you lose focus and i think that's why he's so eat up with it is simply because he can he can be really good at one moment but then if he doesn't have a clear mind and if he's not doing something right literally 20 minutes later he's not getting the same results so what's important for the listeners is that you really focus not so much on the quantity which is one thing that i think a lot of a lot of older coaches especially you know i guess especially in the the target archery side there was a lot of coaches that originally were recurve coaches and then gravitated or gravitated towards compound or just has to coach compound simply because um, some of these countries and stuff only allow to have one full-time coach so that you know the the recurve coach ends up being the the compound coach as well and they just focus on telling them how many reps you need and with like a recurve you need the reps so that you have the strength and the stamina it's not so much the form but with compound archery and what we're doing most of us as bow hunters you have to focus on learning how to make one arrow count and really drawing all your attention to the one to that one moment and then when that moment's over moving on to the next moment and you know you have to do it that way if you you know i'm sure i'm sure in go- like in golf it's so much different it's almost like field archery because every shot is going to be different so it's not like you can sit there and you know they don't have i don't think they have a golf tournament where it's like vegas where you just get 90 balls and there's one green out there and you know everyone hits at the exact same hole and whoever puts the most in there wins i mean every single time it's changing so you can't you can't let yourself can't let your mind wander you have to continually draw your mind back again to that process and actually uh in that same book i'm going to just hit on this quick ej but number two is that learning involves a change in knowledge beliefs behaviors and attitudes and this change unfolds over time and it's not fleeting but rather has a lasting impact on how students think and act this is critical because the more you start to practice with archery the more you're going to start to understand like what a what a good shot is or proper shot execution i know both of you guys have worked with the new releases so that's not something that you're going to learn right away and the other thing too is and i'm sure ej will will back me up on this but your attitude towards change is really going to be all the difference in whether or not that change is a complete waste of your time or whether you're going to end up becoming better at the end of it because if you look at a tension activated release with a negative perspective then it's not going to do you any good i mean your behavior your belief your attitude 
that's a hundred percent something that you have to be willing to change in order to learn something a better way. Yeah, you have to be willing to step aside. Like I said, put your ego aside, your beliefs, your you know, and and take the education that you receive, like the new the silverback. You know, watch the podcast is what I've been doing. Just watch that, understand it, and then try to integrate it without any emotion or feelings attached to it or outcome. Just just go through it, do the best I can, and try to integrate it, and then just see see what occurs and happens from that, and how I can turn it into a learning experience. Yeah, ex- you know what's so crazy, like like Silverback, or, or even you know, John, you started me on the evolution, right? And and uh, man, I remember when I got that evolution. I can remember it like it was yesterday, and it was over ten years ago, or maybe even more, right? But what what a uh, what an incredible tool! Would you put that on my hand? You were very specific and said, "Okay, you got to understand, this is measurably different than anything you've ever done, right?" And I remember just being in absolute sheer pain. I mean, I'm like, hold on, what do you mean? Hold on to the trigger and then let go of the trigger. And the, the, the amount of anxiety that went through my body once I let go of that trigger, right? I'm not pulling a trigger, I'm pulling through. And um, That learning process, you know, if, if let's say you do it two or three times and it feels so weird, you give up on it, right? Your attitude isn't affected, you don't see the benefit of it. You're absolutely right. I mean, you've got to have the right knowing knowing that, that using this tool is going to make you measurably better and change everything for you. And that's what it's done for me. I absolutely, I tried to hunt with it one year, and um, that was catastrophic. But, uh, you know, I, I, I'm pretty impressed with Sharon and Harry for doing that. But, uh, you know, I, uh, I did a nice lift and punch on one at some point, and, and uh, yeah, it took a couple follow-up shots to fix that. But uh, anyway, that's an incredible tool, and you're right. You've got to have the right attitude towards it now shooting my silverback is one of the, the, the greatest things I get to do every day is shoot that thing. I get to shoot a, a one, one that, that's seamless from my knock to it, and it is, it is even measurably better than the, than the evolution, in my opinion. But um, that's, that's a funky deal. I mean, I, there's no question. You know, I don't know if you've even shot the silverback yet, have you? No, I'm afraid yet. I, so. I'm telling you, man. John, John's adjusted my knock to it, and I've had good success, so I don't know. I'm not ready for the silverback. Until I get in the hands of the Zen Master, then when I get closer to John, I'll do it. Oh, I'm telling you, you guys, everybody, that that to me, and I've, I've said this before to you, John, I, I think it's it's required. It, it's something that everybody should have. It's like premarital counseling, in my opinion. You should have that before you get married. You should have a silverback before you do anything. It is, it's going to keep you from from lifting and punching and, and the whole nine yards. And um, it's, it's an incredible tool, and I love it. But, again, it requires great attitude and behavior, or you'll give up on it, right? It's easy for me to just grab my release and shoot, I mean, because I'm, I'm familiar with that. And, and like you said, you got you have to put a lot of trust in that release. Yeah, well, that's the thing. So many people, they grab something new, but they're not necessarily win- willing to learn with it. And... You know, a lot of people wonder how I work with some people, but I don't work with other people. Um, That's something that's, for me, I I think I'm fortunate now that I've got to the point where I can actually be selective and work with people, one, that I want to work with. But for me, what's I've just got to the point now where I don't want to waste my time with people that aren't willing to learn. 
that's a big part of being a good student is being willing to accept direction um you know one way or another if you're if you're listening to this podcast and you know we're talking about specific things and you're like oh yeah yeah that sounds cool i really like that but then in the end you're not willing to actually go home and apply it then you know you're kind of just well you're wasting your own time i remember um joe was here and we were eating dinner and i had a buddy over and we kind of got on the subject of um of kind of getting in shape and fitness and stuff and you know my buddy said yeah i've been i've been meaning you know i've been i've been needing to do that i'm i'm way out of shape compared to how i used to be and stuff and you know joe joe is like me in the aspect of you know he just it's not like he was going to sit there and listen to anyone's story for a while i mean he wasn't rude about it but he just looked at him and said well do you want to do something different about it like you know he's literally you know joe is gonna say okay well let's you know why don't we start right now like you know you're you're using the time to tell us that you're not happy with what you're doing but yet in the end within within a few seconds joe went from probably totally going to help the guy you know if that was something that was that was truly something he wanted to do to then realizing yeah it's not okay it's not worth me really talking on this subject much longer because in the end the guy's not the guy's not serious himself and you have to be willing to do that as a as an athlete especially you know there's a lot of kids that come to me and want to work i've went and worked with a lot of um national teams and a lot of times the archer that you know with kids a lot of people have natural talent but they're not necessarily a great archer yet they just have like a very good competitive drive and they're like you know they're deal closers but in saying that those kids more times than not once they get beat one or two times and they start to realize they need coaching they're really difficult to actually coach because they still have that little chip on their shoulder you know they're still not willing to admit that they need to change things so i mean you have to have that attitude and you've also got to be you know i've said this many times you have to be able to really be true to yourself and self-reflect and realize you know what i'm not any good at this you know i'm not and i've said that about myself i you know i feel like i'm a good archer but you know i don't feel like i don't feel like i'm the best archer that's ever been i think there's a lot that are a lot of them that are every bit as good as me um and i think some of them just haven't applied them you know i think there's a lot of people that are better than me that just were never willing to truly apply themselves the way that i did no i I, yeah that that's a valid point um it's like, too, John, I'm going through some stuff with my son. This is his first time, and he listens to the podcast. He's 12, and we're doing late season stuff. This is his first time being out with a bow. He's done the due diligence on the practice. And the biggest buck on the property came in the other day, which I didn't think would ever happen. I'm saving that one for me. And it just happens to Jerk. come in front of my son. Huh? <laughs> Jerk. <laughs> but I, I did the fatherly thing. I didn't even have my bow in the blind with me. And uh, 
we waited for this this buck was obviously intelligent he he waited till just before dark to turn broadside my son hit a limb and i was like this is cool because this is going to be you know how are we going to handle this how are we going to process this does my son still want to go did i just set us up for failure is this over you know so he didn't know it's the biggest buck on the property i didn't tell him that i just told him it was a nice deer and so he cried uh we kind of exhausted that emotion the first thing was to cry because uh, he was upset put a lot of time and effort in and um we kind of let him go through that part then i didn't say anything in the car because i also read a book about the worst part of growing a kid up in ath- athletics is the car ride home because that's where most parents absolutely ream the kid so i didn't say one word about it i said but it happens I've missed a lot of deer. I said, I guarantee you Dudley's missed a lot of deer because they'll always bring up, I bet you so-and-so never missed. No, that's <laughs> not true. They've missed. So then we got home and he cried in front of his mom about the miss and then put him to bed, you know, the usual love you, proud of you, you know, whole nine yards. Next day he gets up the next morning and said, Dad, can we go again? So that was cool, you know, because I – I, I sense that mentally he's processed it and he wants to go do that again and his inner self has made that miss okay and we're moving on. Yep, yeah. You know, so that was kind of a cool moment and a lot went on because our intent was to just shoot a harvest of dough to give him a chance to experience it and dang it, that thing walked in. And so we weren't ready for it per se. From We did everything we could. The just outcome wasn't favorable, but it was a cool learning experience. Yeah, well, that's that's a big part of, um, I think, any athlete's learning experience is how they're going to accept the defeat. And obviously, that's a huge question with with uh, the next UFC coming because Ronda Rousey's coming back. And, you know, a lot of people are raising that question, you know, how she can either prove that she's the best there ever was because she comes back from something that's so devastating to then immediately coming back to the top of the game, I mean, you can you can shut up a lot of people real quick when you're willing to to step back onto the, you know, whenever you're willing to step back onto the field of battle or the field of competition after a major loss. You know, I feel like the truth is for me, I had way more of those times where I had to go back after losing than I ever did from going back after winning you know i think um and i've talked about this a big part of learning to win is also learning how to lose there's a lot of coaches that really look at me funny whenever i say that at a at a coaching event because they don't want it let they don't want their their kids to hear that at all but i just feel like i feel like that's a very valid point you know just like with your son you were trying to assess how he was going to accept defeat in order to know how far you could move on. I think that if coaches aren't willing to to really understand that about each one of their individual athletes, then they're just they're really missing the ball on being able to maximize the potential of that individual. Yeah, I'll go out with parents on the golf course and watch them with their kids and they hit a bad shot and they go, "Oh, here's another ball, hit another one." 
or they miss a putt. Oh, oh he, that, that's not like him. Here, hit another putt. And I'm like, there's no do-overs. <laughs> you know, just, there's no do-overs like that. You don't get another arrow when that buck walks off. You don't get another tee shot at the Masters on 18 when you flare it into the trees. There's no do-overs. So I think it's more of doing the kid an injustice. I mean, my dad... I, got, I had to play the ball from dirt, mud. It didn't matter. There was no, oh, give yourself a good lie. There was, you know, and, and that's where I think you're right. It's a valid point. I don't think the kids today are trained or educated to handle failure because their parents their parents want them to succeed, not worse than the kid, but, you know, and it's, it's just not right. I know exactly what you're saying, and I see it all the time. Here, hit another one or hit another ball. It's just, it's just not how it is. They're not trained. To, they're not. They're not understanding how to be good losers and learn from the situation. Let's just hit the next one better. Yeah, a hundred percent. You know, how do you? You know, d- d- I think if you never, if if you're always giving yourself a mulligan, you're never really putting yourself in that position where you've almost got to realize: Am I mad about this? Like, am I? Does this upset me enough to pull something out of myself that's that's just more fierce and more competitive than what I know is deep down in there? Or am I just going to like, you know, take the participation award thing and just say, well, yeah. Uh, I mean, I thought I did really good. It wasn't, it wasn't as good as what I thought, but yeah, I thought I did just fine. You know, you, you have to, you have to look at it honestly and, and, uh, accept defeat and then figure out a way to win. You know, that was kind of the next step was, uh, I remember I was I put myself in in contention to win a lot of tournaments during my rookie season, and I was always right there. I was always right there. And I remember um, I went to I actually was in a shoot off with Jeff Hopkins, and I was I think I was sitting sixth, but I was only like four points off the lead, and. I may have a picture of that actually. I might if I have a picture I'll post it. But I remember um I leaned over to Jeff and Jeff was le- was leading and I think because of the fact I had, you know, Jeff Jeff liked me and I don't think he really saw me as a main competitor yet. So he was pretty open and honest even during a very you know, intense moment like that. I know that if you know, if we talked about it, if we were both in that situation now, he probably wouldn't like be so open with me. But I remember he just looked over and he said, "You just haven't figured out how to win yet." And he's like, "He goes, you're halfway there." He goes, "If you can be in striking distance, he goes, he goes, you just have to fit." He goes, "Once you figure out how to how to close, it's going to happen." And that's when Jeff went right into what he does best is going to a shoot off and he just when everyone else was trying to be content with shooting tens and stuff like that he just sat there and just started pounding twelves and he went from having a four point lead to winning with six or eight point leads so you know he he knew how to win and that's what separates a lot of these people on the tour i'm sure you've got people all the time ej where you're like this kid is so freaking good like if he knew how good he was it would almost be scary what he could do on the you know out on the out on the tour but a lot of people just haven't really figured out that yet i know with harry he 
he was pretty much convinced where he was going to go to school, and then at the last minute he had an offer come in to run. So Harry's actually contemplating another college right now. It's a slightly smaller school, but his coach is convinced that Harry is just now learning how good he can run because he just never had that push and he was never like really knew what it was like to be mad about losing. Um, but this year, the last two races, all of a sudden that switch flipped and it went from him making the, you know, ended up coming in like third at conferences. to then all of a sudden, you know, he, he ran a all time personal best, like, you know, top, 20 kids in the school that's ever ran this time and then all of a sudden he goes to state and i said dude i think you can be number one on your team on this i mean he and they've got some great runners and he's like he goes i think you're right he goes i could see that number one guy he goes i i think i can beat him and i said i know you can beat him i said you know you haven't you've ran hard but you haven't ran where when you finish I'm looking at your face thinking this kid could tip over. I'm like, you just haven't learned that yet. Like you haven't dug that deep. And I told him, I said, if you want to do it, if you're, if you want to do it, well, you need to go up to your coach and tell him. So he went up, he went up to the coach and said, I just want you to know, I'm going to finish first at state, you know, not overall, but for the team. And I remember his coach after he walked away, the coach looked at me. He's like, well, I don't think our number one runner is going to have that bad of a race. And I just said, I think you're underestimating him. And sure enough, he ended up winning. You know, And that little difference in how you look at it, at it and then also I, I made him hold ownership in it by going and actually telling his coach what he was going to do. So he totally had the mindset to do it. And I think so many people out there are going to become better once they really understand how to lose. Then they slowly start to figure out how to win. And then put yourself in contention to win by having a positive mindset going into it and having 100% authority on your, on your actions. Yeah, and do you think, John, some of them are looking for, you know, some of the people that come to you, and I, and to me, these are the ones like that, like Rogan lost interest. Um, they're looking for the magic dust, you know, and I tell them all the time, listen, if I had the magic dust, I'd charge you 10 times what I'm charging you, and this lesson would take 30 seconds. I don't have magic dust. I have a plan that if you execute and work properly on it, it will improve. Your, your technique and your, and your skill set will improve. You know, but it's up to you to, like you said, the key word is ownership. They have to take ownership. And I, that's part of teaching. I have to get them to buy in. You know, and so you got your son to buy in. And then he took ownership, and then he got the result he wanted. So I think too many of our students, which you're good at picking it up too, want the magic dust because they want instant gratification. And that's just not how it works. No, no, not at all. And you can, do you have anything you want to chime in at, Gudge? Because I know I took quite a bit of time there. No, I, you know, it's, the, the, the hard part for me is, is what is success, right? That's, as I'm internalizing this, everybody's got a different definition of that, right? And, and getting in contention. Some are happy with 
with this and some, and I guess maybe that's the competitive side of us. You know, what what truly, you know, what drives you and, and how far do you want to go, right? I mean, you know, to me, um, it's funny. I with Grant and Gabe and even myself, I, I'm like the rest of your viewers right here or your uh, podcast listeners. I, I want to go straight to the best. I mean, that's why, I, you know, I, I, I solicited each. Each, I need your help, man. I'm in the middle. You know, what do you got? You know, and, and unfortunately, it's not magic dust. You know, it's, it, it requires commitment. You, you've got to, you know, come up with a cool system that allows you to be effective, you know, when it, it's really difficult. And uh, that's why I love this stuff. I can't get enough of it because, again, you know, I'm trying to maximize um, – all of my effort and energy to get better, right? I mean, why, why if, if it's available to me, uh, you know, I, I certainly um, want to find it. And, and, again, once I find it, I feel the responsibility that it's my job to help somebody else. You know, I, I, that's truly what I feel, and I know EJ's the same way, and I know you are too, Doug. That's, that's why we're on the phone call right now. I mean, we're trying to help, and, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. You got to figure out what's important. Come up with a plan. Write it down. Yeah, you know, I've even written something down. I can't wait to to start thinking about my post kills. You know, in my post practice, how was the feeling? How did you, you know, how did you get there? You know, you've told me this many times with golf. You know, remember that because you're going to want to go back there. You know, it may be a, a period of time before you're back there, and it's just like with with hunting, right? I mean, it may be it may be a year away before I, I'm in a tree or I'm in a ground blind. It, well, in fact, it is going to be a year away, right? I mean, before I'm back in Kansas, there's no doubt. How do I pull back on that, that learning, right, those, those experiences? And, and one, again, hope for a positive outcome that is very fluid, right? I mean, we're not talking about I'm trying to hit a 12. I'm trying to hit a, an animal that doesn't want to be hit, right? I mean, and I'm trying to be quiet. I'm also trying to film it, whatever, you know, and, and we'll, uh, we'll talk about one of the other things that uh, – um, helps me in Kansas uh, come up here. Nice segue, anyway. But uh, you know, I uh, it, it it's just cool to to be able to sit here and listen to you guys talk about learning and strategies. It's it's inspiring to me. Well, the reason I film is because I like to be able to look back at that moment as a hunter and a hunt. Like I don't need to really write that down because that's why I film. I'm able to go back, and that's why I like filming myself, is I can actually go back and relive that moment and really understand 100% exactly how I felt during that particular moment and, you know, and be able to enjoy it again because, you know, especially with something like hunting, that's so, you know, it's, it's something that kind of just gets inside you and, and uh, you know, it's super, super addicting. A lot of people, unfortunately, don't really understand the feeling that we're talking about. But, you know, you have to be able to, or at least for me, the reason why I have to film is because I want to be able to enjoy that again. I know with um, with Harry and Sharon, one of the coolest things, as much as um, filming is, is a pain in the butt a lot of times, the fact that we're going to be able to go back as a family and like Harry's kids are going to be able to go and see his dad, you know, shoot an alligator with his bow and arrow at age 10, you know, off the ground. I mean, like that sort of thing for me is I, I really feel like I can tell you that that's a big reason why Harry 
is such a good student and such a good archer. He can put his bow down for an incredible amount of time and pick it up and just pick up right where he left off. And I really think it's because he's able to see himself enough through, you know, through us having the TV show or me doing a little live feed with him or me, you know, posting old pictures of him shooting. It's almost like this, it's a, you know, it's this um, positive mental enforcement. It's, it's creating a it's creating a self-image picture for him that even if he hasn't practiced i don't think he really comprehends that because he's seeing himself do good all the time through our videos and you know through maybe different posts or live feeds that i do so i think a big part of anyone being able to to perform at a top level is you know being able to document those super crucial times for us, it's filming. You know, Gudge and I have done it a long time. I don't know how long we've self-filmed. I think I've self-filmed for, mm, I think it's right going on 20 years is how long I've been self-filming. And honestly, my only re- my only regret from competing is the fact that I never really carried a camera around when I competed. I really, really wish I did. Well, you know me too. I always like that second camera angle. I know down at uh, Stewart, you liked watching you like watching me squeeze the neck of that bow off. I know you were loving that, but uh, <laughs> you're right. Getting that second camera angle on me is always important to me. I, I don't know why, but you're right. It's a pain taking those cameras. Oh my God! And doing all the the countless days of of uh, <laughs> doing a lead in, and 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 you just delete them the next day because nothing <laughs> happened, right? I mean. It is a freaking nightmare, dude. I, I mean, it truly is. But I'm with you. I love, I love having that etched in memory forever and ever, right? For your kids, kids to be able to see, and um, it is super fun. It's, it's very gratifying for me. I, I know it's, um, it's very challenging, especially filming yourself. It's, it's well, one of the hardest things I've ever done, and it, it you know, kind of stinks when something comes in after camera light or. You know, it, you, you can't get good footage of it, whether you kill it or not. But uh, it is. It's uh, it's a complete um, – you talk about elevating everything. It makes it twice as hard, not only to, to get one shot, but to get it on camera and to make it worthy and, you know. But it is cool to see. So you can, you know, evaluate that later and, and you know, get feedback and so forth. It's kind of nice. Well, I mean, we're kind of getting a little bit off subject, but I know, if, like, when I'm filming, for example – there's time and I self film a lot both of us do but I think because I'm doing so much there's also a lot of times where not everything's perfect I don't make the perfect shot or you know I might have a marginal shot angle or you know the, the animal moves quite a bit before I'm able to get my shot all that stuff just happens in reality when you're trying to film yourself and then still go through making the shot um I think when you're the more of that you're trying to do it it really does elevate your it does elevate your level as a as a hunter i mean if you're able to go out and be successful just shooting a deer with your bow that's cool then if you're able to go out and be successful you know having someone with you and filming a deer that's cool then you go out and you're able to film yourself shoot a mature whitetail i mean that's a major accomplishment I mean, that's huge. It's really, really tough to do. It's super hard. 
I completely agree. It's super frustrating, and uh, you know, but boy, when you get it done, it is it is incredible. It well, truly is a great thing. I want to talk about that in a minute, but I want to hit on this last point though, and that is that learning is not something done to students, but rather something students do to themselves. Um, it's a direct results, really, of how students are interpreting and respond to their experiences with their conscious, their unconscious, and their past and present experiences. So, you know, how do you relate that, each to some of your high-end golf people that you're working with? I think when they're training, they're more in a conscious state because they're more aware of, of what change we may be trying to implement uh, to get the desired outcome. And I think as soon as they kind of, I feel the difference there, I think that's a cue that they are now learning on their own. They don't really need my feedback as much because they've just identified to me that, hey, I understand what you're asking me to do versus what I, uh, versus what I was doing. And now they're, they're spitting feedback to me. So then they're gradually there, too, moving to the unconscious because they want it um, more. I mean, the desired outcome for a high-level play would be more in the reactionary unconscious state. Um, and that's where we're ultimately trying to get to, where amateurs and the people that I think I struggle with, they're always in the, in the conscious state. They're always, what did I do there? What did I do there? Well, we just discussed that, and I told you if you did it, the ball would do, you know, and they're constantly looking for me for more and more and more and more and more answers. And so that lesson goes a whole different direction than the high-level player that just wants to see the ball go better, understand what he did to cause it, he wants a feel that's traceable, and then he can assess the flight of the ball and then run his checkpoints to, okay, based on what EJ said, I just need to do this better. And I will, I will continue to say I think good high-level players improve quicker than amateurs because their ability to do that. Their ability to assess, I don't need this guy's information, all of it. I just need what pertains to me. I need his, him to educate me on what caused that to happen. I need to trace it back to myself and know what I need to fix. And once you do that, they're done. You know, it's just monitoring the rest of the time. So I'll walk around for two or three days monitoring, just making sure their self-talk is accurate. That's all I do. Yep, yep. hardly any talking. People watch me walk a golf tournament, the U.S. Open practice rounds, or the math, wherever it may be that I'm walking. They go, well, he's not even doing anything. Well, most of our work's been done. I'm trying to figure out how they're doing emotionally. Is everything good at home? Are they in the right mindset? Do they want to air any dirty laundry to clear their mind? You know, so you go through a lot of different topics to try to get them in the right mindset. Yeah, if you're if you're there working on a golf game, then that's a terrible feeling to be in as a competitor. I mean, you want to yeah, fit. it's the worst place to do it. It's yeah, the worst place to do it is at the at the venue the day you know a couple days before. It could be minor stuff, but really, I'm just walking with them to be a friend and and let them vent, let them you know air out anything that might be an issue. So by the time the tournament starts on Thursday, they're in a good mindset. They're in a good frame, mind frame to, to be, to, you know, you want the screen clear. You don't want a bunch of, you don't want a bunch of garbage on their computer screen. You want 
you want very few things to be left on that thing. Yeah, yeah. And as a competitor, you really want to be there with 100% confidence that we've done everything we need to do to have the perfect game plan for this. And then as a coach, you know, what I, well, one thing that sucks is the most access people have to me is when I go to a tournament just so I can say hi and stuff like that. And people will come up and be like, Hey, will will you look at this? And there's no way out of courtesy to any person that I'm <laughs> that I'm gonna give them information while they're about to shoot a tournament. Because the last thing one that I want is for them to be to not perform well. But then also you got to remember someone's like, oh yeah, well he worked with Dudley for like 20 minutes and now he sucks. <laughs> well, yeah, I yeah. mean that's the worst time to do it. You don't want to do it there. You really, you know, a lot of I tell people I said, you know, can you. Can you come up to me afterwards? You know, I, yeah, I see some stuff that I would maybe try to get you to work on a little bit differently, but, you know, I don't want you to talk about that now. And actually, you did that to me, uh, Ege. You did that to me when you came here. You started asking me about your shooting right when we're, you know, you're literally like 12 hours away from going on a super awesome uh Iowa hunt, Iowa hunt that yeah. you that you had waited so much time to draw the tag, and you're like, well, can you can you like check me out and let me know what you think? I was intentionally trying to be quiet. Meanwhile, Joe's like, you kind of draw your bow really weird. <laughs> yeah, you lean the wrong way. Your anchor point's not very good either. I'm like, crap. Yeah. yeah. I, when we went down to the target, I looked at him and I said, I go. Yeah, dude. There's a lot that I would do differently. I said, but I'm not going to tell him a day before he shoots. I said, just yep. I said, just tell him everything looks pretty good. Uh, and he, he was just kind of like, I don't think he really got that. I was trying to make sure that you weren't going to go out and be overthinking it when a buck finally came in. You know, it, it just wasn't it wasn't the right time to really dig you know dig too deep into that stuff. Yeah. No, no, I'm good. <laughs> you know, I, I think I think uh, I think each told me this once. He said, "You know what? You know, as you're standing on the first tee of whatever it might be, he, he said to me, he goes, you know what? If you didn't bring it with you, I'm pretty sure you're not going to find it out there.' <laughs> you know, so <laughs> and that's the same thing with a with your, you know, it, it's you've got to be prepared, right? I mean, you've got to. You know, it's like I talked about the other day, my 36 yard shot. Dude, I can't tell you how many times I sat down in my backyard shooting that, getting prepared. And and Ege has always taught me this. He's like, there's no surprises. You've already played that tournament. You know you're going to win it. You know you're going to do this, you know. And so, you know, if if you didn't bring it with you, man, you're probably not going to find it out. (laughs) That's a good saying. Yeah, that's a good saying. I know a lot of people that go to an archery tournament and then – it's about four hours in and they're already heading over to the Lancaster trailer trying to check out if they've got the, this other release. And it's like... They want the pixie dust, man. They want yeah, the magic they want dust. The magic dust. They're looking for it. Yep. yep. Trying to find that dust. Well, well, uh, those are the guys that you're glad because you got... That's one less guy you have to worry about beating. I wish they'd all go over there. I'd tell... I'd encourage them to go, yeah, those Lancaster... They got it. They'll get you all fixed up. Just go over there. Heck Yeah. Uh, speaking of magic dust. Oh, God. <laughs> what are we going to talk about? You know what we're going to talk about. Oh, yeah. Well, 
I've been meaning to, to get to bring this up because, you know, one, I haven't even talked about what EJ's really geeked out about. You know, everyone, he's a golf guy and he likes bow hunting, but what's, what's amazing, EJ, is no one's even going to really get this, is what you're really geeked out about is deer nutrition. Yeah, and and just deer in general. I mean, if you ask guys I went to college with and played pro golf with, they said I'd be a better player if I wasn't thinking about hunting in the outdoors all the time. And <laughs> and and what what I did really is I leveraged golf as a tool to because I could see the writing on the wall what it was going to open doors for me to meet a lot of people and what integrated. What it, what it turned into when I quit playing is I moved to Palm Springs and I taught for Jim McLean and that opened a lot of doors and I, I got to meet a lot of the Silicon Valley people, Seattle people, Microsoft, you know, because they would all come down and work with Jim. And uh, then I taught for the El Dorado Hotel and Casino and met a lot of high rollers and then I started doing corporate outings. Uh, so I did a lot for the corporate world and they would fly us around and private jets all over the country to help build their business. And then one day, um, as fate would have it, a gentleman said, "Eat your golf model sucks for long term. You're going to die on the lesson tee because there's no income when you sleep. So he said, we need to do something for you. And it didn't take me 30 seconds. And he went through a deal. He said, should we buy you a golf course? Should we buy endorsed training aid? Should we build you a teaching academy. Should we? I said, I'm not moving my family. I'm raising my family in the Midwest. It's just where we want to be. My wife wants to be there. It's been all about me forever, so the least I can do is, is you know, do something beneficial to my family. So he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to start a deer feed company. He's like, what? Where did that come from? I go, I've been thinking about it since I was six and seven years old. The first deer I ever saw, I was like, how big can I get it? <laughs> so... Uh, he made me work on a business model, and it took me six months of flying back and forth to Chicago. He had me do the, the due diligence on the logistics and uh, what nutritionists I was going to use, uh, what biologists I wanted to use. Um, I was going to target large landowners first because they use large quantities, and I, unfortunately I can't say any of the customers' names because it's part of the agreement. Um, but... So um, I worked on that, and my, my buddy said, I'll tell you what, let's roll with it. And that was almost four years ago, John, and we started. We haven't really done any marketing or advertising at all. Um, I hired Dr. Harry Jacobson, was the very first person I wanted to talk to because he was the head of Whitetail Research at Mississippi State for 30, 32 years. He's a biologist at... Uh, manages ranches from Del Rio, Texas to Long Island, New York, Mexico. And so he said, if you, if you do it right and use my knowledge, um, which not many people I've talked to will do it, I will jump on board and I will help you with this product. And that started us rolling. I knew I needed credibility and I wasn't going to bring it. You know, a golfer in the deer feed business, are you kidding me? I'm so surprised by it. Harry, <laughs> I mean, I was like... Dr. Harry, yeah, I was surprised by it. I was like, wait, when did you get into this? 
Yeah, it, it's been it's been in me for a long time, and then and I felt like with the connections and, and Gary, my buddy, helped me understand that it's the connections that I've had and that I've built this whole time that would help me get this thing going. So, like I said, I targeted very large, low fence, free range animals um, that these gentlemen would that feed lots of pellet to. And that's how the model started. And now we're integrating. We've been testing product. You know, I've been testing product with Gudge since day one. You know, what can we do from a nutritional side, number one? That's never going to be compromised. Nutritional value from a skeletal, immune, rumen function, none of that's going to be compromised. Um, we're, not gonna, we're, not, we're not that company that you can, it's salt and rice brand or, you know, we're not that company. Uh, if you put a product down of ours, it's going to be the utmost number one important thing is that it's nutritional value, highly palatable, and they like it. And that's why we haven't launched anything because we haven't wanted to be quick to that. That's why, you know, we're reaching out to you, trying to get you stuff to, to give us feedback on because we're not going to launch it if, if not everyone likes it that we know. So I would say we're more in the developmental phase right now with hoping to bring some stuff to the table uh, this fall. Well, I know. I mean, I told you this. I told you this a month or two ago. I mean, I'm. I I'll help you no matter what. For sure, give you feedback. But the one thing that's kind of important for this particular subject, one thing I want to say right off the bat, is, you know, I'm a I'm a big believer in fair chase. It's a you know it's a big part of. Um, kind of my core beliefs and why I, I want to work with the Boone and Crockett Club. So, you know, I'm not I'm not necessarily I'm not like and then I know there's people that do it, but I'm not a big baiting advocate. You know, here in Iowa you can supplement um throughout the time of the year where you're not hunting, which I am a believer in. I do really believe that, you know, there's years, especially here, we've had two record drought years over the last three years. If if you weren't able to supplement, you know, some of these deer, they would really struggle to get what they need in the wild at, you know, at some points. But, you know, there's other times where, and I'll let Gudge key in here, but, you know, Eric, and he, every year he would hunt Kansas like a machine and eventually he'd get one. Like I think last on the last season of the show, didn't you get yours like the day before Christmas gudge? Yeah, it was late. It was uh, in December. Yeah. I I remember it was like, was it for your birthday or something? It it was. Oh, well, you know what? Actually that was late November. That last year was, um, last year was, November 20th. Uh, two years ago, though, was December 23rd, I think it was. Remember, and it was that tree row out in the middle of nowhere? Yeah, see, where you hunt, and that's kind of what I'm getting to, when I first started getting Eric's um, footage, I was like, I called you and I said, how many trees are out there? And I think you said one. <laughs> yeah. Cottonwood tree. Yeah, crow, crow, It's tough. It's really tough. Yeah, so you're hunting in areas, and I know that some of the spots where we've hunted in um, Oklahoma, it's it's all low fence, but you know you do you do have um, sites where you feed because 
that's the only way you're ever going to be able to legitimately see something, too. I mean, you know, one, you're, well, you're supplementing, but two, that's the only way you're ever going to see one. Well, there's a, there's a, you know, there's, there's a handful of reasons that it's so helpful for me, but in Kansas, I'll tell you, and I'm, I'm in southwest Kansas predominantly, uh, I know you've hunted the east side, which is oak trees, and, you know, there's a lot more competition for, for food. When I'm out west, I'm telling you, man, those big bucks, and, and that's obviously what I'm after is a big buck. They're in the grass. They're not coming to a wheat field in daylight. It's not going to happen. You know, they're, they're going to especially come rut. They're going to get them out into a tree row somewhere where they're just, they grow up because they're very, you know, they're very wary. They don't, trees are not an issue. You don't just, you know, you find your tree and jump up in it. I mean, the hay bale blind has changed everything for me out in Kansas. It's been incredible. So, you know, I've got a bait in some of those trees. You're going to see the hunt this year. I mean, I didn't have water. I didn't have food. I didn't have anything. I mean, I, it, was, it was incredible that I caught a big buck. But I knew if, if, I, put, if I put some of our pixie dust out there, well, I'm not even <laughs> sure what we're calling it right now. Yeah. We're, we're calling it Project the Secret y right now. Project Y. You know, it's, I knew I had an advantage. I knew it. And, and I knew if, if I can just get him a taste of that, they're going to come back. So, and I even have great luck in Oklahoma. I, a lot of my places don't have feed on it, you know. And, and so, it. Uh, I, 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 I'm different. I, I, I'm a huge believer in bait, and I'll tell you why. Because I don't have the ability to go plant a big corn crop or a um, even a, a my own. I don't have anything. I don't have you know. I, I mean, I got my bike. I guess I could pull a, a, a plow with that. I got nothing, man. I mean, <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> Good. You know, I, I could spread some seed, I mean, with my hands or something, but, you know, I don't have that, and, and uh, you know, I'm just a big fan of, of bait. It, it helps me from a filming standpoint. It, you know, not always during the rut are they even going to stop at bait. You know, you've got to be, um, you know, I'm not a big fan of feeders. You know, I just, I, I haven't had great luck with a with a tripoded feeder hunting underneath them, but... You know, I, I've, I've deployed those to, to keep feed year-round. It's just more economical and so forth. But coming up with a great product that gives me an advantage, man, especially out there in the sea of grass, it's a, it's a huge help. Well, John, like you talk about, too, from the pellet perspective, I tell people all the time, it's not the answer. It's just part of the equation. I mean, if you have record years for growth, browse, if you have available browse out there, no, and this year we had a bumper crop of acorns. It was my worst sales year, you know, since we've started because they were just hammering the acorns. So it's definitely not the answer. It's just part of the equation. And these attractants we're coming up with, you know, they're, they're going to help the guy like Gudge that, that doesn't have the tractor, that doesn't have, you know, a lot of guys come and say I only have 20 acres. You know, I'm not going to put in a food plot. My neighbors end up killing them. So, you know, we're going to try to help that guy out that doesn't have all the available resources, but then again, for a buck that comes in that he doesn't want to kill, he leaves there with some nutritional benefit. You know, he's going to get something in his tummy that helps him absorb more nutrients from whatever he eats after that. You know, if he eats this and then goes eats an acorn, we have stuff in there, he'll absorb 8 to 10% more of the nutritional value of what he eats when he leaves there. You know, so you don't shoot every deer that comes in. So we're, we're just trying to take everything into account and and do the best we can for the overall herd health to help guys maximize genetics. As long as they let the age, you know, this stuff isn't going to, you know, grow a one and a half year old to 160 inches. 
you know, there has to be those other key factors. There has to be good genetics and, and age, you know, to help us maximize the antler growth form and, and help the fawns as well. Well, I, I will say out of all the arguments I've heard for baiting, um, Gudge kind of just put it the simplest. I've actually never heard anyone just say it that simple. You know, I know that, um, you know, I've always tried to, I've always tried to have a small place to hunt at least and i guess i've always just taken you know i guess budgeted in whether i had to hire a farmer to to you know put in a food plot for me or you know i guess plant corn but you know i can i can honestly say i've got a lot of standing feed on on all the places that i play i plan to to try to go to for late season. So, I mean, I guess the way you put it, it's a valid argument. I mean, the difference is, I guess, you're really not in a position where you can do the exact same thing that, that I did. But in the same sense, you know, it, it's it's similar. But I agree with you on the feeders. You know, I'm not, I'm not an advocate of hunting over feeders. I know that um, there's definitely been times where I've wanted to, you know, really try to control the doe population and get a lot of does down. And, you know, I've used attractants that's worked really, really well. But I will say too, the years that I've, that I have supplemented in protein feed on my place or a place that I'm going to hunt. I know I had a lease in Kansas one year. I shot one of the biggest deer I've ever shot, but I was really persistent about going out there and putting protein down continually and i really believe that it helped because since that time i've just never seen the actual horn horn size that i did that year that i really was able to be there a lot and had the right supplementation out so i mean i'm curious on this i'm definitely gonna i'm gonna apply more to it and you know i want to i kind of want to find a spot where well at least now i feel like a challenge of finding a spot where i can almost treat it the same way that eric does where i can just pretend like i can't put any food there and you know i guess within the means of the law go out and supplement the right way throughout the year and then see if I'm able to to be successful without necessarily having the food plot and all that stuff. Well, there's no doubt. I, you know, by standing corn, it, it's, it's, or your standing feed, that's my standing feed. Just happens to be in a pile, right, 20, 29 to 35 yards from my tree stand, right? I mean, that's, that to me is the key. But, you know, here's the competition that I faced in Kansas. Every tree row got a giant corn pile right i mean there's no doubt somebody's somebody's running into the co-op they're filling that thing up and i'm competing with different bait piles so you know to me it's important to have the best it's just like i seek out you know the podcast i seek out you for learning i seek out each for being effective you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna seek out the best product that i can put down on the ground that there is actually something to that i'm sorry i i i just you know, deer will eat the bark off of a tree, right? I mean, but when they find something they truly freak out about, 
it gives you an advantage. And that's what I'm excited about Project Y. It's an advantage to me. And at the end of the day, I mean, I'm just maximizing my time. I'm maximizing my effort and my energy. And, and having a product that's measurably, measurably better than everybody else, shoot, I, uh, you've seen some of my, my paint pile stud. I spare no expense, dude. Well, well that's to your guest the other day from Mississippi State. You know, he was talking about stuff that, you know, I don't want to get told, but he talked about regional stuff and how what the demands of the deer nutritionally in Mississippi may be different from Kansas, may be different from Iowa. Well, why can't, why can't products, you know, do the same? You know, why, why would I sell you a bag of something to a guy in Florida to the same guy in Iowa? Well, that's you know, very, yeah, that's super critical. Here, yeah, they're different. So there's ways to gather, you know, soil samples. The soil deficiency is going to be the plant deficiency. So, you know, there's different things we can do and some other things we're working on with a liquid and a mineral that, you know, why can't they be regional so that you don't have higher levels of something that the deer doesn't require, you know, but then higher levels of stuff that the deer does require to help him maximize. So, you know, there's a lot of cool things we're doing and working with a lot of intelligent people and, and guys like you and stuff can test it. I mean, I guess we should tell them the company name, too, is Garland Animal Wellness. Yeah, I, well... Know, we need our group, so... Yeah, that's... I'm excited. There's a lot of things you've told me that I'm like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna drink the Kool Aid. I wanna, I wanna see this actually go down. But yeah, Guds, you're. I mean, some of the, when you talked about some of the size of your bait piles, in all fairness, you're driving like six or seven hours to a spot that you found that you know a little place where you're able to hunt and it's nothing but grass. And it's not like you're going to be going there every single day. I mean, you've got to like, you've got to have enough down to where you can maybe get some cameras out, and you know you can kind of do your thing, but not have to be there every single every single day. You need to be able to still do family duties and things like that. So that's really why you're putting so much down. I think anyway. I guess I don't. I haven't really asked. But. No, you're right. I, I, I am. I'm, I'm significant distance away, and and. Uh you know there isn't any cell service so it's you know i I can't i can't put a camera on that tells me what's there all but uh, you know i've got a month's worth of of data that i've got to go through to find out what's there and you know that's the hard part It is a long ways away and i'm not a you know i'm typically well almost never hunting over a feeder you know i just i'm a i'm a big believer of putting it on the ground so uh, that's why i'm excited about project y it's going to be uh it has been, you know, a really good year with it and excited for the future with it for sure. What um what have you found for trail cameras? I mean, from that aspect, I think I think having especially post season, you know, like here in Iowa if you can't bait, having a post season area where you can really be able to put food down, one I think it's important for the herd because a lot of those bucks are freaking shot. I mean, not literally. Some of them may be shot literally, but they're just shot physically from the amount of stress that they're going through breeding. But I think it's critical, you know, for you to understand what you're hunting better to have good, solid, late-season pictures. And for me, I know at that time, putting food down is critical just just from... A documentation point of view, I'm sure Gudge is, or I mean EJ is probably going to 
chime in and say how important it is from a nutritional point of view but you know i i just like to get pictures sometimes and it seems like that's a great time of year to get them well i think it's the easiest time to get them too i think it, you know you can take inventory incredibly easy in january because everybody <laughs> pulls the plug right? think about it everybody wants their return on investment right why would they invest in in january if they're not going to be back there there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons why you wouldn't do that I think, you know, deer need nutrition in January, February, March more than they do any time, any other time of the year. It's going to determine what they're going to look like in 17, in my opinion, without doubt, if they can't get the nutrition in those three months. But think about it. Everybody's done hunting. They got their rut out of the way, and they just, you know, they sit back and, you know, sip a sarsaparilla instead of actually taking care of the herd. So, it's critical, and I've been guilty of it. I, I've done it. I'm like, you know, I'm pulling out of that place, or I'm not going back, you know. So there's a lot of reasons for that, but if you really want to protect your herd and you want to develop your herd, and EJ, you'll, you'll confirm this or deny it, but January and February are huge. Yeah, because they're, they're run down. Some may be gore. There might be infection. You know, who knows what, what damage they've taken in that rut cycle that, may inhibit because they're not going to focus on antler growth until the overall health of the animal is in better shape. So to think that they immediately grow antlers when they're run down, no. If they're, if they're fighting infection or, you know, some other sickness, they're going to focus first on getting healthy, and then they'll focus on antler growth. So the quicker that animal recovers from the rut, the, the earlier he can focus on antler growth. You know, so, yeah, you're right. What... Um if someone has never done this, Ege, let's just talk about it then, because I'm gonna, I'm gonna get serious about it. I told you that I would. I've never, I've never really geeked out totally about supplementation and stuff like that. There's times a year where I've done it. I mean, I think, I think a lot of hunters, <clears throat> and you know, I want to say first, there's gonna be some people listening to this podcast right now that are going to say well i don't have a i don't have land of my own you know i have to hunt on a buddy's or i hunt on public land and hey i understand that but there's also a lot of people listening too that do have their own land and they're you know they're in the position or they've leased a place for the first time um and they're they're really looking at okay how do i maximize that investment you know how do i make sure that i'm gonna you know well, above and above all of this that we've talked about, the one thing you said, Gudge, was when you said time. I just am to the point where if I'm going someplace and and I'm hunting and it really isn't isn't prepared, it's no different than going to a tournament without having pra- proper practice. I mean, I really think there's a huge importance to scouting to doing your homework first to having that stuff done before the season is there so i really want to focus on areas where i feel like if i'm going to take time away from my family i'm going to get the most benefit out of that time away because of a few you know small little steps like what we're you know like kind of like what we're talking about today but i promised ej i said i'm going to i'm going to do this whole thing i want to document it though i told you that i said i want to like if I'm going to do it, I want everyone watching to be able to watch it too. And, you know, you're going to have to be willing to to drive up here and show people, okay, here's here's one of the things I'm going to do first with, you know, with this particular piece of property or whatever. I want people to learn from it as well, EJ. 
Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely, and that's why that's why I think there's it'll be a good, healthy relationship for both sides because I figure I feel like the, the due diligence we've done the last three or four years to get this stuff ready, um, I, I want it to be put to the test. You know, I feel like we have already, but more people that test it and the more good feedback we get, uh, even better. So, yeah, I, I encourage you to test it. Whatever questions. Uh, or issues or anything like that you have, we've got to be ready to answer answer them and justify it. So, yeah, absolutely. What kind of improvements have you seen on the places where you've, you know, you talk about some of the people where you can't really disclose their name. Were these places highly managed prior to you helping them out, or are these places that... A little bit of both, John, and I'll tell you how, how it's evolved as feedback that even gives me more more gratification. You know, if you monitor the oil and gas prices, Oklahoma thrives on that, you know, when, when it's good, it's the economy's good. Well, when we first started, it was really good. I mean, our sales were great. All the guys were, a lot of the, the big ranches and, and people were using the product, using it right. And then when it crashed, we took it. We took a good hit because deer feed is not a necessity; it's it's a luxury. So if they're going to cut anything, it's going to be that. Well, I went to visit a friend of mine that uh, I've known for 20 years that used it diligently until uh, last year. He could no longer afford it. So um, I went up there about a month ago, and he always likes to bust my chops. But his wife had texted me and said, hey, we can tell a real significant dis- difference in the, in the animals, the mass and the time length. We're not seeing near the animals this year. Now, a biologist would say, well, they probably didn't get much rain, or, but I know this guy. He knows the animals. He knows what he's got, and he manages them very well. And um, when I talked to him, he did the same thing to me the other day. He said, I can tell I can tell a real difference. He said, as soon as my oil and gas checks start coming back, um, I'll be back on it immediately because I can tell a difference in the quality of my bucks. So, um, you know, that's, that's a thousand acres, you know, and, and, we're, and it's, it doesn't meet everybody's budget either. You know, there's a lot of hurdles, and this, this isn't for everybody, you know. So, um I understand that, and guys will say, you know, well, I have 80 acres. Well, why, why wouldn't you just throw down a mineral? Throw down a mineral in the spring when the does are, you know, getting further along into pregnancy. The demand on their system is getting hard. The bucks are growing antlers. You know, you could throw down and start your own mineral like that. But I noticed they did in Iowa. They did their camera surveys in August and September. They were over mineral piles. You know, yeah. and then the, the mineral goes away. And so then you go to pellet in the fall if you want to do it like you and Gudge are talking about because obviously that pellet's a complete feed, not an attractant, the pellet we make too. So, you know, I, I totally understand it doesn't meet everybody's needs, but I feel confident that the feedback that I get from the people that use it and the people that help me design it, we're, we're moving in the right direction. Yeah, I want to, I mean, I'm, I, I kind of want to, go all out but in the same sense i almost for the for the sake of the listeners that i think are more in the same realm of eric of you know they may have a few one or two places that they hunt and you know they may they may want to maximize that and but they also you know might not want to do it at a super cost i mean i want to almost in the same sense try to figure out something where 
if I'm that person, you know, this is kind of my same process as when I uh, decided to shoot Hoyt's cheapest bow that they made. You know, when I shot the Charger, it was because I I know there's a lot of people that, that bought a Charger, and I wanted to prove that people can do really well with a bow that's not necessarily the highest end cost. So I almost want to maybe see what we can do at a level that would be more comprehensible for the average person i mean can we do something like that i mean i want to i want yeah, I'm, I'm to inter- outline we just have to outline john what what you know and maybe you know listener feedback uh would be a powerful tool you know listen to the voice um i, I like i said i can't jeopardize because of the, what we built the company and the principles that we have i can't compromise the health of the animal from a you know, because that product's already out there. You know, that that's the the filler. five dollar yeah filler yeah fillers yeah it's it's rice bran and you know all that stuff. So, you know, we can listen absolutely. And um, with the nutritional, uh, the people that I've surrounded myself with from the from the nutritional side, yeah, I, I can come up with, you know, we could call it you know knock on you know whatever you wanted to call it. And, and listen to the listeners, take down what they're looking for, price point-wise, quantity-wise, and, and see if we can get it done. Well, I would definitely treat it no different than what I treat anything. I would definitely say I want to – what I like about what you're saying the whole time and actually what made me interested in when you and I first started talking about how geeked out you are about this stuff is the fact that so much of the focus is on the quality of it. Because that's what geeks me out about anything. I know Eric's the same too. You know, there's times where our wives wonder why we buy a new camera or, you know, why we go and buy a new bow or whatever. It's because I'm, I'm geeky that way. I want, I, you know, if there's something I feel like has really cool technology, that's what I'm, like, that's what I'm interested in. I want something that is going to be, that has real meaning and value. I mean, from that aspect, I'd be all in. You know, if we can, if we can make sure we weren't, like you said, I don't want to cut corners. I don't want to just have junk. I wanna, I would want something that, you know, lets people be successful like Eric is, but at the same time, you know, someone that's more interested in, you know, making sure the, the nutritional side is there. Um, obviously, I. I'm big on documentation with trail cameras, so from that aspect, it would be cool too. So, yeah, we need to do something. I'm like, I'm interested in this. I want you to. I told you once deer season was over, I'm going to take you around to the different farms that I'm able to hunt, and I want you to give me the process because I feel like I'd. I've never really had professional insight on management from a nutritional aspect, like a hundred percent nutritional. That's a whole different thing for me. It's a I'd be, be cool. careful with the word professional. Well, you better <laughs> I would be. say like, I'm a gatherer surrounded by highly intelligent people, and I use their knowledge and resources to do the best. You know, we, our whole deal, like I said, I don't, I'm not interested in compromising quality. You know, I, the quality comes first, and then I worry about the other stuff, the pricing and all that second. I'm not building a product for pricing. I'm building a product for quality, and the price is what it is. You know what I mean? So I'm, I'm learning every day, 
these people that, that study deer every single day and have for 30 and 40 years are fascinating to talk to about. Which I tell you, if we ever wanted to bring one of the guests on, one of these guys, they would love to come on and share all this with your viewers that are way more intelligent than I am. I'm in the infant stages of all this. Uh, I'm all about that. I wanna. I had a. Yeah. I had a good time talking with um, with um, Bronson or Bronson. He was um, Bronson Sterling. He probably knows yeah. the people that you're talking about. But yeah, Correct. I'm. I mean, people like that that have knowledge on that sort of thing are just fascinating. I talked with a guy um, that was another Boone and Crockett member. We talked about wildlife conservation and um, he's actually like one of the lead studiers, studiers of wolves and uh, bighorn sheep and wrote, wrote a lot of books on different subjects. Um, I actually gave his name to Rogan because I think it'd be a dynamite personality for him to have on. But um, that stuff, to me, talking to someone, you know, I guess it's no different than people having interest listening to this podcast. I think if you have vast knowledge on a, sub- on a subject, then it's definitely interesting. And I know if, for me, I always want to know, you know, those types of people, they don't only know nutrition. They're going to be c- critical in helping you understand like patterns of deer too i mean if they if they know nutrition to that extent they're also going to be extremely effective in helping you understand why certain times of the year certain areas are much better to be hunting than other times so i mean that that would be someone i'd 100 percent want to you know i'd be interested in getting us getting us all hooked up well a quick one john dr harry did a study they they tranquilized some wild deer and they went through this woods and they, 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 they took count of every possible available browse in that region. And then he put like a camera on the deer and they, they have like, and, and I'm not going to get the numbers exactly right. There was like 550 options that a deer could eat and they ate 230 of them. So they're very select. And, and they, I don't know how long the study ran for, but it's just stuff like that. And he can tell you what percentage of what they ate more of. And it was just, it's just fascinating to me how, how a deer thinks and moves and what causes them. It, it was, it's really fascinating. I thought that was an interesting study. They walked it first. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's, gr- that's super cool stuff. And that's, you know, when I was talking with Bronson, that's, he started talking about some of these studies that they're doing with um you know with the feed patterns of deer and you know like they're you know how they're setting up things monitoring different browse and different food plots that they're going to create with only certain specific types of foods i mean these are the things that you know people read a lot of articles and i you know obviously i write for a lot of magazines so i don't really want to take away from myself either but you know, these are a lot of the things that factor into people being successful year end and year out. You know, I think we all have a buddy that's just always killing something and he's always successful. And I've got buddies that are that way on places that don't necessarily have an abundance of game. So I think those people just have a really good understanding of maybe certain times of the year their places produce really well and i'm wanting to credit more of that to them 
really knowing when they do good in specific areas and so much of that could be specific to the diet more so than the fact that the deer are there because it's pre-rut or because a neighbor always pushes them out at the same time of the year you know i feel like my particular place where i do well um with with hunting here in iowa it's not good all the time i mean i don't hold i don't have deer there all year long you know there's a lot of those deer and you know the bigger deer that i shot this year included you know several of my neighbors were curious how the heck that deer was all the way over by me because that deer had been miles away for almost the entire summer so what changed to where that deer was no longer happy with what he had in his surroundings and now has made the movement all the way over to where I'm at. Well, it's like Bronson, it's either, you know, they're, they're led by their reproduction, they want to reproduce breeding, or stomach. Yep. Oh, yeah. Well, you I... know, they're, they're like strong, strong uh, instincts. So he, I would say most likely, obviously, when you say that, it was one of those two. Yeah, I would, well, I know it's true for me. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's true. I know it's true for me. Well, this is going to be cool. Where, so what's going to be my first step then? So I'm like, I'm just a piece of clay in in EJ's um, big old hands. And usually, John, we go to um, Google Earth, kind of, and your knowledge is going to help it, you know, because. How many deer? What kind of population do you think you have? What percentage of um, bedding versus, um, you know, food plots? Um, and then, you know, obviously it gets into budget. Do you wanna do you wanna do a pellet? How harsh a winter are you having? You know, where a pellet would maybe help them get through the harsh winter and get to recovery, so they can start storing calcium, magnesium, and phosphorus for antler growth. And and then. Um, then in the spring we would pull some soil samples and get a get a soil sample and then help you with a mineral that would complement your soil so that the mineral would be beneficial to the deer and not not stuff they don't need in their system because the whole goal is the more I can keep in their system and they absorb the more beneficial I don't want them excreting it you know that does us no good and and we can get into that with protein levels in the future but um, and then. You know, then you get into your hunting season, so obviously there's nothing we can do then. We hope to have them in peak physical condition by the time they get there. And, and our theory is we want the bucks to be like uh, marathon runners. We want them to be in peak physical shape. You know, guys are saying, well, your fat content's a little low. Well, I can make the deer look as fat as you want, but how optimal is that going to be when he needs to breed 30 does or whatever they breed in a year on your property, you know? So... I'm trying to build athletes that can handle re- the, the breeding phase, and I want the does to be healthy. I want them to be able to handle that being chased around. So, you know, it, it just depends on, obviously, budget and, and what your goals are. But, you know, we have a mineral. We have the pellet. <laughs> I'm um, excited. I picture, I'm picturing, like, you're going to – I can literally build a Brock Lesnar and freaking be stomping around <laughs> on my place. <laughs> I mean, he wouldn't be healthy, but we could build one. Yeah. You know, there's funny you should say that because that's that's the direction and that that some of the guys are are looking at as far as you know protein, you know how they process it, amino acids. You know, that's all that stuff I'm looking into now. It's just it's, I'm continuing obviously, like I said, I'm continuing to learn more and more. But 
Um, so there's now, really we'll get you picked up. There's really people that are saying that that's not making my deer fat enough. Yeah, they want they want to look out there and they say I want to kill three hundred pound animals. Jesus, I can easily get the animal to that weight, um, but it's not necessarily healthy the way we go about it by raising fat because they don't have a gallbladder, so they don't process fat very well. So it, it, it's it works in reverse. They've got to work harder to process it, so there actually is more stress on their system. But aesthetically, he'd look like a moo cow out there, but physically he's in bad shape. E days. Did you ever work with um, any of the Russian Olympic athletes? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. In golf, it's not a high level of, I don't want to say it hasn't occurred, but there's not a lot of drug, there's not a lot of enhancement drugs going on in the golf world. I don't want to say it hasn't happened, but it's not as prevalent as the Russian athletes that I've seen in the, those guys that say they're girls in the Olympics. Or girls that say, you know, whatever. But yeah, I know what you're talking about. Well, I just think with what you're with what you're telling me about uh, how people are treating their deer, I guess it's like I didn't even know it was that serious. But maybe, oh, I'm, yeah. maybe I'm just stupid to think that. No, I had a guy call me the other day and said, "Each we've learned some things about amino acids that I'd like to talk to you about, and how they pro and stuff like that." So yeah, no, it's it's. Every day I'm learning something. Well, yeah. Crazy. Well, um, do you have to catch a plane or something, EJ? Yeah. <laughs> you I have to go to warmer climates to teach for a couple days. Right. But it never fails. Every time I go teach, I, I, I meet a new deer guy. Are you flying private? Uh, not this one. He's not that. He's he's not to that level yet. But we're hoping to get him there soon. <laughs> That's your goal. Is you're like I want to yeah. make you so good that I'm not flying coach to come out here. <laughs> Correct. Correct. I'm gonna well, I'm gonna start famous, using that. Trust me. He's gonna tell you, but this guy's big time, and no. and all of his guys are big time. So get him there. Well, thanks so much, dudes. I had a good time. It's just like Thank always. You. you start to get. I, you know, we literally got on topics that was geeking me out right when I have to shut down. That sucks. You know. Well, it's. I think too, it's contagious because that's why. You know, I think. I hope the viewers. I think they can, or the listeners that can sense the passion in all of this, and and ultimately, I think that's what you know continues to make this thing work, and and that's why I think you're going to continue to be very successful in the in the next stage. Yeah, the next stage is going to be awesome. Hopefully we're going to close this gap on people's ability to interact and be able to see what we're talking about. And, you know, if you and I go out and start trying to, um, you know, get Brock Lesnar, I want people to see how we're doing it, you know. and <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So, well, thanks so much, dudes. I, you know, this is It's nice with a podcast because we know that we're going to get to talk for a while. And so many of the people that I've had on are just like longtime friends that I truly trust their opinion on and really care for. So if nothing else, that's, you know, I talked about why I like to film. I just like the documentation. What's so awesome about a podcast is that good friends get to actually communicate for much longer than we normally would with our schedules. Yeah, Craig, when we hunt, you always think you're going to visit, but you're on, you're in the tree first thing in the morning, so you visit for about 10 minutes. Then you hunt all day, you see each other over dinner, and you go right to bed, so you really don't get to visit at all. No, if you come, 
if you come here during the during the whole month of November and think we're gonna visit much, probably not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All I'm right. Enjoyed it, Dad. It's great stuff, man. Yeah, Dad. Thank you. All right. See you guys. Fly safe. Be careful. All right. All right. See you guys. All right. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. Knockonarchery.com.